Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Maybe in the corner. You like the post. <laughs> uh, so, everyone's comfortable, I hope. Um, I guess I just want to say before we jump into our afternoon together, uh, that uh, it was so nice last night to have so many people, uh, a good conversation, and um, I said it last night, and maybe I'll say it every day, but I love coming to Copenhagen and seeing so many familiar faces. Uh, Bodil reminded me that Every time I come, there are so many repeat students. And uh, for you, you probably get your perception of that, which is, uh, oh, I get to see Michael again, or whatever. Um, but for me, uh, uh, I feel like it's family. And I really mean that. And uh, I hope that as the years go on, when you come and practice here, you'll also see that there is a community. And even if you just see these people one time every year, that's also part of your community. And it's important to recognize, I think. Nowadays, our communities are so uh, disoriented. They're so broken and uh, uh, distant. And most of the way people find community is just shopping. So, uh, shopping. Chopping. <laughs> so much of our practice is uh, funneled unconsciously through the idea of correct and incorrect. I'm doing this right and I'm doing this wrong. I'm living my life in the right way, I'm living in the wrong way. Or even smaller than that, there's a right way to meditate, and there's a wrong way to meditate. The truth is, is there's no right way to practice. There's no wrong way to practice. Our practice is always related to our karma, our habits, it's always related to our current understanding. And it's always related to the conditions of our life right now. And what that means is the practice comes alive in each person in a different way. And from the outside, nobody can see uh, how intimate your practice is. Because the heart of your practice is yourself in relationship to your experience. How you are with your experience and how you respond to your experience. And that process changes all the time. So in a way, we don't even know what our practice is. 
Because our practice is not one thing. It's changing all the time. So, uh, don't worry about whether your practice is right or whether your practice is wrong. The most important thing is that you bring your whole heart to your practice. And when I say practice, that word is a placeholder for life. The most important thing is that you bring your whole heart into your life. And there's not a right way to do that. Everybody is doing the best that they can do. So I encourage you uh, over the next five days to contemplate as we're practicing. If you're really bringing your whole heart to this, and if you can bring your whole heart to this practice, then you're training to bring your whole heart to your life. Because your practice and your life are not two separate things. Every year that I come here, we choose a different text. I do my best to alternate between yoga texts, Buddhist texts, contemporary teachings. Like last year, we studied a contemporary essay by an American. Uh, This year, I'm choosing uh, the Dhammapada, mostly because that was the first text I ever was introduced to uh, in terms of teachings of the Buddha. And uh, I learned it from a family member when I was a kid. So it goes back a long time in my life, even though I only have memories of the first sentence, which is the best one. And um, the Dhammapada probably wasn't written, uh, wasn't spoken by the Buddha. Uh, Usually to get a feel for what the Buddha said, you study places where the Buddha was in dialogue. So the Dhammapada was likely created much after the Buddha's death. And it reads more like a poem that encapsulates all his teachings. So this is the text that I want to study together. And so I've taken some excerpts from the text and put them together. But before we get into that, I think it's really important that we start from the very beginning. Um, Which is the practice we were doing this morning. Which is waking up your body which is settling your mind, and then sitting still in meditation. It's really important that you're able to bring mindfulness to what's happening in your moment-to-moment experience. And it's also really important that you learn how to concentrate. If you get on your bicycle and you say to yourself, I'm going to be really mindful when I bike from my home to the studio, from my house to work. Then you'll notice you're breathing, you'll get on your bicycle, you'll start pedaling, and after a few minutes, you'll get to where you're going, and you won't even know how you got there. (laughs) Has anyone had this before? You set this really good intention. It's not that idealistic, you're just saying, I'm going to pay attention the whole way to my pedaling, to my hands on the handlebars. Um, Or if you have to take the, I don't know what you call the subway here, um, the train, the metro. Say, okay, when I'm on the metro, I'm going to pay attention to other people. I'm going to notice the sounds. I'm going to be really mindful. And then you get to your destination and you stop and you say, what? (laughs) I wasn't, well, how did I get here? I was on automatic pilot. So, mindfulness begins with an intention. But you also have to be able to concentrate. And if there's not enough concentration, mindfulness doesn't really work. 
And I'm not going to get into debates in meditation schools, but I will say that in meditation schools, there are these great fights about whether you should teach somebody basic mindfulness practice of coming back to the breath again and again and again, and teach them how to concentrate and stay with one thing as separate exercises. Okay, so how to come back to the breath every time you wander off. That's one mindfulness practice. Then, also, how to stay with something and not let it go. And some people say, if you just learn basic mindfulness practice, eventually you'll just start to get concentrated. And some people say, well, you won't. You also need to learn how to do concentration practice. And I think it's different for different people, so I haven't taken a strong stand myself. But what I will say is that when you notice the breath, like we were practicing this morning just outside the nostrils, when you inhale, you can say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, you say to yourself, peace out. And you do this for the first few minutes, just peace in, peace out. And then after a while, you don't need to say that, you're, you're, you're there with the breath, and you start to get really concentrated. And the way you get concentrated, paradoxically, is to relax. The metaphor I like to use is you go to the beach, it's warm, you lie down, you get an orange umbrella, you put it up, you have a cold glass of water, and you watch the waves coming in and going out again. Has anybody done this before? <laughs> so this is how you have to concentrate. You relax your body, and you feel the breath coming in, and you feel the breath going out. And there are two ways of thinking about concentration. The first way is you pick an object like the breath and you relax into it and you don't focus on anything else. So it's like you put the blinders on and you don't pay attention to anything else. You just keep feeling the breath, feeling the breath. And every time your problems come in, you say, oh, hi, problems, I'm busy right now. And you go back to your breathing. And you stay, stay, stay. And then you, you try to cultivate an atmosphere where you're relaxed in the breathing with nothing else coming in. And maybe at the beginning it feels a little bit like repression. Because you're really not letting anything else in. And what starts to happen is your eyes stop getting focused uh, on particular things. So if you sit with your eyes a little bit open, some of you do this, your, your vision will go a little blurry. And that's usually a sign that some concentration's happening. And I won't get too much into that right now, but you can get so concentrated that the flow of sensory input uh, stops. So you're so focused on the breathing that, this, that, that, that other input doesn't come in anymore. You're just right there, and there's nothing else coming in. Do you, do, you understand, do you have a taste of what I'm saying? So the flow stops. The other way of concentrating, which is the kind that I tend to teach more, is you start with your breathing, but then you let your body open to temperature, uh, to the sounds. There were a lot this morning, weren't there? Mm -hmm. Coming and going. Right? And you don't let yourself be disturbed. You just open up with awareness. And then what happens is the flow continues, but the mind stops. So these are two different ways of thinking about concentration. So to sum up, the first way is so focused that the flow stops. The flow of what's coming in stops coming in. 
so in the zone. And the other way is so open to the flow, but the mind stops. And don't ask me what the mind is. I don't know what it is. None of us know what it is. Yes? Uh, I've enjoyed both. Mm. Um, I feel it's easier to do the other way, the second way, when you hear the sounds and you're just centering. Because when you you know, it's so hard to keep you focused on the breath, breath, breath. Yeah. It's easier to just be able yeah. come to you. Yeah. Yeah. What I want to suggest is it's important to know both models because the first model of really getting one-pointed supports the other model of being able to come back. That's why I give the example of getting on your bike and saying, okay, I'm just going to keep coming back. I'm going to be open, you know, and and you can't really sustain it because the concentration is not strong. So over the next few days, I'll talk a little bit more about concentration. The point of this is you start to see the relationship between your intention to be with something and your perception. So how your intention influences your perception and then how your perception uh, influences the way you respond. And that is the beginning of our practice. Do you remember last night I said our practice doesn't begin with a belief system? It begins with noticing perception and how perception works. When you sit in a space like this with people, We share together 10,000 years of history, 100,000 years of history, 500,000 years of history. Your personal history, uh, your troubles, the history of your gender, uh, the history of your family, all these histories come. Personal problems, your career, your family. How many of you have problems? (laughs) so when we sit we bring all that stuff in all that stuff is mixed up in the room if somebody came into the room they would say oh they're so peaceful but that's because they can't see what's really going on everybody's sitting so still but really it's a complete insanity it's insanity So when your emotional troubles come, and when your memories come, you just say hi to them. And you say, I'm really busy right now. So I'm going to allow you to come in with my breathing, but I'm not going to figure out right now how to deal with you. And this is an important point. When your troubles come, you don't have to work them out in the meditation practice. We're just learning how to be with the tone. We're learning how to be sensitive to the feelings. We're learning how to be able to um, um, feel frustrated. Delay our reactivity. Restrain ourselves from acting out. Or turning inward in a negative way. Yes. Sometimes I think you get some answers also. You know, these mm. problems come, and, and, but then suddenly, while you're meditating, you see it more clearly. So there's yeah. a solution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So should you still send the thoughts away, or should you like? Yeah. Sometimes you're sitting, and then uh, you're letting go of grasping, letting go of this, letting go of that, and then you have an insight. Mm. This is a real thing. You have an insight. Oh, and you see something a completely different way. It's amazing. And then you leave that alone. (laughs) And you go back again. But the point is is that the insight comes to you. You didn't think your way to the insight. (coughs) 
It usually just shows up. And it usually doesn't show up as a thought. It usually shows up as a shift of some kind. So it, it's not necessarily a thought. It's like you're suddenly perceiving something. And then you have a thought. And then you call that insight. But the insight usually is just that a shift happened. And you saw something in a different way. This morning, I, for example, I walked out of the house and it was uh, a beautiful light and I'm staying across from the lake and uh, there's a little island there and there's a uh, trees and they were such a nice just kind of shadowy silhouette and the water was pink and the trees and the trees were very, very beautiful. And I saw them. And then I noticed that there was a woman, uh, maybe 20 feet from me, with a camera, taking a photograph of the trees. And then I looked more closely at the trees, and they were filled with birds. But I didn't notice the birds the first time, because my mind was so quick. Oh, trees, pink, lake, another beautiful morning in Copenhagen. But I wasn't really looking. And then, because she was there looking more closely, then I saw the trees in another way. So that's that shift. Sometimes it's just simple as that. So simple. Um, so, I want to look at two different ways of thinking about beginnings. The first one you might recognize. I'm going to read it. And you'll see if you recognize it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And God said, does anybody know this? Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. This was the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made a vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so, and God called the vault sky. There was evening, and there was morning the second day. Anyways, this goes on. But this is the beginning. God separating things out and naming them. So now, let's compare that with the beginning in uh, the Buddha's teaching. So here's how the Buddha describes the beginning. Here's what he says. And not that one's right or wrong, but just it's interesting to kind of compare different ways we think about the beginning. Here's what the Buddha says. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, the beginning is perception. Every moment is a beginning. Every moment. Every time you inhale, everything begins again. This is another way of thinking about Genesis. This is another way of seeing our life as sacred. Is that in the beginning, there's a beginning that's in this moment. And in this moment, there's a beginning that can only be experienced in this moment. 
In other words, every moment of perception is a new moment of experience. And experience is preceded by the heart. And in some translations, most translations, it's experience is preceded by the mind. In other words, your mind, the filters, the habits of your mind, precede, they come before phenomenon. So in a way, the moment that's brand new isn't really brand new. Because the habits of your mind come before the arising of the moment. So when a moment arises, your perception influences how you experience that arising. Most of the time, when something arises, as it's arising, so in the moment of its arising, there is clinging. There's craving, there's fear, there's reactivity, right? And so the state of your heart, the state of your mind, influences how you experience the birth of a moment. And the nature of your heart, the habits of your heart, uh, make the moment. Isn't this interesting? Mm -hmm. So the sanskaras, the habits in our heart, actually make the moment. And if you participate in the moment by speaking or acting with a heart that's in trouble... then suffering follows you, just like the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. So you can picture that, right? There's an ox moving along, pulling a cart, and the wheel of the cart is always going to follow the hoof of the ox. Always. Going to follow it along. In that, in that pattern. So, Experience is preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, and made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm and a bright heart, then happiness follows you. If you speak or act with a heart that is in trouble, that is reactive, that's compulsive, that can't let things be, then that's the moment that you're going to experience. And then unhappiness is going to follow you. You might have had this thought hundreds of times in your life, but I want you to have it fresh again right now, to really hear these words fresh. That you're the condition of your heart. We forget about this. We're always thinking about our biceps and our hamstrings. <laughs> but it's so important that we're paying attention to the condition of our heart. Because it influences. No, something else is being said here. It's the beginning of your life in every single moment. How you perceive your life is influenced by the state of your heart. So, this practice we're doing is like a hygiene regimen for your heart. And maybe in our culture, if all of us do this more and more, we can push the bell curve of sanity a little bit more into the happiness direction.
if you see your heart in this way and you train your heart. I could use the word mind, but I'm going to stick with heart. If you see your heart in this way and if you train your heart in this way, then um, you can allow yourself to have a deeper emotional life. And once you can feel more of your emotions, then you'll start to notice that underneath the negative emotions are really positive emotions. We have a lot of kindness in us. It's right there, under the surface. And when you're calm, and when your attention is bright, kindness is there. It's right there. Also, we have tremendous respect for other people. And so, underneath your competitiveness, and underneath your ambition, and underneath your resentment, you have a lot of respect for people. And when you're calm, and your heart is bright, you can feel how much you respect and admire other people. But maybe you haven't allowed yourself to admire them. My brother is a musician, and he always says to me, the thing about artists is that they hate anyone who's doing something that's similar to what they do. And he always says that because I often send him music that I think sounds similar to the music that he makes, and he hates it. <laughs> Is that with a clean heart? What's that? Is that with a clean heart? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of kindness in us. We have a tremendous respect for other people. And also, I think, underneath our own negative views of ourselves, because nobody has a more negative view of yourself than yourself, uh, we care about ourselves. And if you can't have that relationship with your heart, then it's hard to care about other people. And this is where concentration comes in. Because it's hard to know what's going on inside of yourself unless you have uh, the ability to concentrate. In other words, to, to stay with your experience in a sustained way. So, all you have to do is take care. Keep coming back to the present moment. Drop your clinging and be willing to open to whatever is happening without grabbing too much. And if you get frustrated, it's okay. There's no cure. When you're in touch with your breath and your body, it goes so far beyond your breath and your body. At first you say, oh, it's my breath and my body, and my body is tired, and my breath is agitated. But when you just start connecting with your breath and your body, it's not your breath, and it's not your body. And it's such a relief to feel that in your heart. It's not, uh, it's not about you. It's about you, but it's also not about you. So the Dhammapada is called the path of Dhamma, which is the Pali word for Dharma. Path of practice, path of life, path of your heart. And I think it's really important to think of your life as being on a path. It's like you're a river. And if you look closely at a river, it always has banks. 
And the banks really influence the quality of the flow of the river and the health of the river. So if you don't have a spiritual practice, then the banks along which your life flows are the banks of consumerism and advertising and Google. Google, 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 Google. YouTube, 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 YouTube. And then, the way you experience the moment is via a story. And the story is created by the banks. You see? So one of the reasons to have a spiritual practice is because spiritual practices are a path and there are teachings and story and narrative in the path that the banks pick up. The river picks up. When you have a... when Oh, a bank. Do you know what I mean by a bank? Oh. A river flows and it has a form. Right? Okay. If the form is just the internet, then your life is picking up the internet. Just like if there is a lot of pesticide use in farmland, it all ends up on the banks of the river, and the river picks it up. Right? And this is the quality of the water is polluted. So the reason to have a spiritual practice is because a spiritual practice has values and ethics and stories and community. And having that influences the flow of your life so that when you experience yourself through different stories, the stories from your spiritual tradition can help guide you. And that's why we come together with other people to practice. To be reminded, like you said, oh yeah, this is what's important. This is what I can rely on. This is what I can really rely on. I used to think that um, practice was like a mountain. I just moved uh, to British Columbia, which is full of mountains. And our house is on a cliff. I've been thinking about this a lot. So We have a, a modest house on a cliff with an amazing view of the ocean. And uh, when I walk, uh, there, there's a walk that I do every day to a lookout. And when I walk home, I, I can see the cliff that we're living on. And when it's raining, the whole cliff is wet. But the cliff doesn't change. It's just a cliff, but it's wet. And when it's really sunny, the cliff looks like desert. It looks so dry. The cliff doesn't change, but now the cliff is dry. You see? And when it's really windy, everything's blowing around on the cliff, but the cliff is still a cliff. And that's how I used to think about spiritual practice. That you're like a mountain, and you sit like a mountain. Um... And when it's raining, it, the mountain's soaked, but it's still a mountain. And when it's windy, the wind um, blows things around on the top of the mountain. But the essence of the mountain is still a mountain. But now I don't feel that way anymore. Because sometimes there's earthquakes and the whole mountain changes shape. <coughs> so your practice has to be much deeper than the mountain, actually. It can't just be a mountain. Someone told me a story that they knew the prime minister of Japan. And apparently the prime minister of Japan, this was a couple prime ministers ago, um, used to sit zazen, sit meditation every morning. Woke up really in the, early in the morning and sat. 
And this person one day asked the Prime Minister, when you wake up early in the morning to sit in meditation practice, what do you do? Like, what are you doing when you're meditating? And he said, when I wake up in the morning and sit in meditation, I imagine that I'm connected 500 feet deep into the earth. Isn't that nice? So when you sit, you set up your posture, and you sit 500 feet deep. 500 feet deep. So you have to be a mountain, but it also has to go really, really deep. And so we should be worried if we have a yoga practice or a meditation practice that doesn't go very deep. It gets blown around a lot. And we should see that the more we're committed to practice, the more it becomes like a mountain. And then, even the mountain can really get blown around. So then, it has to go deeper than the mountain. That's the possibility of some kind of adaption to a new situation. I mean, you can't expect a situation to just come and you need to adapt to that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I talked a little bit about being depressed last night. You know. And so that was like a shock. You know, because I'm really good at working with my mind. I've trained my whole adult life to work with my mind. And uh, so then sometimes I get into mental states that are really hard. And it's, no, it, it's a problem, but it's okay. It's okay, it's no problem. And then, the past few years, sometimes when depression comes, the, the intensity of the darkness of the depression is stronger than my technique. And when I was younger, I would think, oh, well, I just need better technique. But now, that's silly. I don't need better technique. For the first time, I'm seeing that actually the earthquake is, is way more intense than anything we can be prepared for. And that's like that for you, too. Maybe your thing is not depression. Maybe your thing is, uh, I don't know, some kind of addiction. Maybe uh, something catastrophic happens in your life. You lose somebody that you love. This is going to happen, you know. Parents lose kids younger than them. There's something called um, solastasia. Has anybody heard this word? This is a new word. I'm very interested in this word. Solus. Right? You know solace? So sola from the word solace. I don't know what solace would be. Danish. Solace. I'd like to find comfort. It's the kind of comfort, you know when you're home and there's like a certain kind of sanity, comfort that you get in a certain piece of land, for example. Can you translate that? S O L A C E. And agia is like the same as nostalgia. Right? Nostalgia and solace put together. And what this word is used, it's being used by environmentalists and uh, sociologists to talk about. Um, to talk about a sadness and a longing in people who are living in a place, but the place has been affected by pollution or um, um, environmental issues, where 
there's a longing for a place that you can't ever get back again. Do you know, do you understand what I mean? It's, a, it's like a new attempt to talk about a psychological symptom. This longing for a relationship with the wild that we can't have anymore because the wild is disappearing so fast. So, um, that affects us really deeply. So, we need a practice so that we can deal with that. Because it's intense to think about how the world is not the world our parents had. And our kids are not inheriting a planet that we have. They're certainly not going to fly as much. So, one Zen teacher says it this way. People are often careless about the thoughts they give rise to, assuming that once they forget about a thought, the thought's finished. This is not true. Once you give rise to a thought, it keeps functioning, and eventually its consequences return to you. In other words, let's just tie this to meditation. In meditation practice, we say, notice a thought and then let it go. Let it go. And come back to your breath. But sometimes that's not enough. That's not enough. We also have to be able to just see the whole process of thinking and grasping. Not just the thought coming and the thought going. And we also have to be able to see how a thought creates seeds. And the seeds influence perception, they influence how we speak, and they influence how we act. So, this goes back to the beginning again. We need a practice. We need a practice because phenomena or experience is preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, and made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, suffering follows you like the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. Don't you want to redo your week? <laughs> Does anybody feel that way? It's like, oh God, all those things I did this morning. I could have done so many things more skillfully. That's why I made that little chart that some of you have seen. Does anybody have it? Yeah. yeah. So you should have this chart and put it on your fridge. And at work, everywhere. I made this chart, and it says, uh, if you can't read it, it says, before you speak, consider if it's true or untrue. If it's true, is it beneficial or unbeneficial? If it's untrue, don't speak. But if it is true, consider if what you're going to say is beneficial to say or unbeneficial to say. And then, if it's unbeneficial, don't speak. So it could be true, it could be completely true, but it's not of benefit to the situation for you to say anything. It wouldn't benefit you or anybody. But if it's true and it could be beneficial... Then you need to think, the person who you're speaking to, can they accept, or not accept, but can they take in what you're going to say or not? If they can take in what you're going to say, say something. It's really good for your heart to let that energy flow through. Say something. 
If it's not accepted, in other words, if you perceive that the other person cannot hear this, then you should reflect and then wait for the right time. In other words, you're committed to the speaking action. So you have to have a lot of courage in this part, is to know how to wait and reflect and then say something at the right time. And just before everybody goes out and grab one of the charge, hmm. they are uh, not free. They're not free, yeah. They're really expensive to make. These are handmade by a really great uh, printmaking artist in Montreal. Um, so you can buy one. You can buy lots. And you can... Uh, it's not like I'm making money on them, really. Um, but buy them, and you can put them up on your fridge and at your office and give them to people. They're really good Christmas cards. You know? If you have an enemy, write a little note to them on the back. <laughs> And mail it to them. Anyways. How much are they? Well, I charge $10 for them. But I don't know what that is. No, I'll check the rates. They'll be like 60. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to keep going. But are there any questions or comments? And then we'll have a little break. Yes. I just wanted to say one thing, though. <laughs> in all the years that I have taught at Yoga Mudra in Copenhagen, which is like 10 years now, we've never finished a text. So every year I try and make the text shorter and shorter and shorter, and still we've never finished it. Last year we got halfway through. So I'm going to try this year. Yes? Uh, when you have uh, a depression, do yeah. you still get up every morning and do meditation and do the standard practice or do you just sometimes give up and stay in bed or how do you deal with that in a fight in you? Yeah. Well, um, for me, my level of responsibility is quite high. So I have a lot of people counting on me. Especially my baby. And so I can't lie in bed. So sometimes I really feel like I just want to lie in bed. And I have an amazing partner. And she always says, if you need to just lie in bed, you just lie in bed. And I'll, you know, I'll make breakfast, and when you're ready, you can do your thing. But you know what? I've done the lying in bed thing so many times in my life. It's not helpful. So whatever it takes, I, I try to sit up, and I try to go outside, and that's how I work with it. Um, and uh, the problem with depression this is my problem with depression I don't know if it's everybody's problem with depression my problem with depression is ruminating so when depression comes like the emotion's fine I don't have any, I don't care emotions, I can deal with it but it's, my mind starts ruminating and it's really hard to get out of it and the rumination what's the word for rumination? I don't know Yeah. Do you, do you know you know the water that goes down a toilet? That's rumination. So it's different from looping. It's not a downward spiral. It's looping, but it yeah, it goes down the drain. Yeah. <laughs> That's regurgitation. <laughs> um, and uh, rumination is always a dead end. It's always a dead end. Yeah. Uh, so, there's only one cure for ruminating, which is mindfulness. Because how else do you work with it? You just have to be able to catch it and work with it. 
I don't know of another cure. So it's helpful uh, sometimes if you really need to lie in bed, you should just lie in bed. Uh, but it's also good to get out of bed. And, and some people just don't have the luxury to be able to lie in bed. So, so you said that that's, you realize that you can't make the practice or your technique stronger? Yeah. So, but what's the alternative? I mean, and isn't that what you're doing when you say that that whole mindfulness is, is the only way to overcome it? Isn't that making you know, Yeah. What happens for me when it's really intense is that um, there's a point where my technique isn't helping. It's not helping. So, um, I've never had that ever in my life. So that's the sign for me. My practice is getting stronger every year. But uh, the intensity of depression is getting way stronger. So this is my practice is like this. And the depression is like that. And that's why it's been so interesting talking a lot to my mom. Because that's how I learned that it's getting more intense. Because that's what's happening for her and that's what happened for her father And that's what happens for two of her siblings. It's like, this is like the family genetics. It's really interesting. So it's given me more respect for genetics. And it's also given me more respect for the limits of practice. Um, so I think that sometimes uh, uh, meditation practice can't help us with those kind of states. And we need to do other things. And in the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's no, no uh, I mean, talking about karma and so on. There's no yeah. those issues. Uh, I've never even heard of the word depression in the Buddhist tradition. I don't know what, I don't think there's a word, actually, to describe that. Well, um, I don't mean exactly depression, but uh, working out, uh, because you can, you can look at genetics as a form of, of family karma, can't you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't found the magic key. <laughs> yes. So, so when you say that mindfulness is helpful, yeah. I'm thinking has it to do with you know, when, when there's such intense emotion <clears throat> that you can't really change it by doing something, then there's yeah. the aspect of mindfulness where you practice being with it rather, realizing that you can't. Yeah, so you might hear that I'm saying something that's contradictory. On the one hand, I'm saying, because these questions seem to be related. On the one hand, I'm saying, the only thing you can do when you're ruminating is mindfulness practice. Because you have to be able to notice that the ruminating is happening and not be the rumination. In other words, you have to have a little distance so you can see it happening. Right? But what I'm also saying is that in my life I'm noticing that sometimes the rumination is so intense that my practice isn't able to get the right distance from it. And I've never ever had that in my life. And I find this really interesting. So then you need to do other things like uh, medication, more exercise, more community. You need many, many other pieces, not just the meditation practice. Yeah. Isn't that one, I think, a part of mindfulness that you notice that you have to do something else? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the next step. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. This is the first time I've ever spoken about this ever in a group of people and uh, so that's one new thing I'm doing about it it's like oh god it's no big deal <laughs> you know, feels really nice yeah. but that's just because I'm in Copenhagen when I go to Vienna next week I won't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> yes have you ever felt some kind of guilt or shame that you have 
think for me, one of the things that I felt is that um, because of my role as a teacher, that people very quickly assume that, uh, oh, well, it couldn't be that bad, and that uh, you have enough help, and you know a million doctors and a million therapists and are very well connected. And, you know, I mean, I know the best meditation teachers. I know some of the top neuroscientists in the world. I know, I mean, I really know people who know about this stuff, but it, you know, it's still there for me. So for me, I felt a little bit like, uh, okay, when I started feeling up for like talking about it more, a lot of my students or friends, their first response was like, oh, but you know how to do it, deal with this. And it's like, no, no, listen carefully, I'm telling you something. So I felt strange about that. But I think a lot of people, they have stuff going on in their life and they really try to hide it. And one of the ways you can hide it sometimes is underneath your practice. Like, oh, I have this practice, I'm very spiritual, but there's this other thing going on. <laughs> and like, I am so scared of bringing that other thing into my practice. Because it means I'm going to look at it and speak about it and pay attention to it. And you know what? I would rather just have the addiction on the side that nobody knows about. Like, when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, I was so upset because he was my favorite actor. Because of actors, he's like the real actor. Right? He really went for it in his roles. Does everybody know his, his work or what he looks like to recognize the name? And... Um, and then I started reading about the last months before he died. And he was working on a theater play. And the people who were in the play were so moved by how intensely focused he was on every single part of the play. He was so inspiring to everybody working on the play. And then he would get home and he would completely crash. And he had been in rehab, but it wasn't working. And he started using heroin again. And you can imagine, um, here's this person who is so well-functioning, so creative, right? But they can't figure out how to bring this other part into their life, right? And then everybody's shocked. So that's, you know, whenever you use a celebrity example, it's always a bit of an exaggeration, you know? But still, we all have this in our lives, in our own hearts. Is there, there's often something that we can't bring into our practice. When I say practice, remember, I'm really saying life. The practice of your life. And what is that thing? Well, if we're going to be here for five days and we're going to really drop in together, then you should be feeling this in your heart. Oh, you know, there's some areas in my life that I'm... You know, not really courageous enough uh, to look at. But I can. First you, and then we'll have a break, and then Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just about the whole thing, the cheerful, the cheerful mind needs having a lot of contract. I mean, I see why he went back to Harry. I don't get it, I don't see the solution in it, but it's like going into meditation, it's maybe going into focus, that was a way for him to stay in it, and mm -hmm. the work he did at the theater, that was a contrast to it, and contrast, and for me, my freedom and my cheerful mind stay in the contrast. I really need to do the meditation, but I also need to do the dancing in the disco, because in between somewhere, I feel my cheerfulness. Yeah. 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 So I think both is important. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't want to make it sound like when I say practice, it means meditation. And when I say the other stuff, it means dancing and disco. What I mean to say, like dancing and disco and meditation, these are all part of your life. 
So let's not make it like I'm saying practice is this one thing you're doing on your cushion. You have a life, but when you have a life, there's always something you're trying to leave out because it doesn't fit with your theoretical construct of me. It's the nature of having a me, is you have to leave stuff out. That's it. We need to constantly look at that. Otherwise, our spiritual practice is a little bit superficial. Okay? Don't believe any of this. <laughs> you should really think about this in your life. And then, you know what's going to happen? We're going to do this together for five days, and on the last night, we're going to go dancing. Together. Promise? As a group. <laughs> yeah? Hmm? Disco dancing. <laughs> what do you think? Wouldn't this be great? The only thing is, is that my bedtime is 8 p.m. <laughs> so we might... Where they also have like dance, uh, 10 a.m. Dance. dancing. That's more my style. Okay, thank you very much. Um, can we take a short break? What time is it? What time do we end? Okay, let's take a break for 10 minutes.